Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Marth, and welcome to The Halftone. On today's show, you'll hear my conversation with the printer Robert Hennessy. Hennessy makes printing separations for books, and if you're a fan of photography and a fan of photo books, chances are that you've seen his work before. Hennessy is responsible for taking a photographer's original work and translating it into ink for reproduction in books. And he's had a hand in work by Sally Mann, Nan Golden, John Gossage, Robert Adams, as well as a few of my personal favorite books, including reprints of A Way of Seeing by Helen Levitt and American Photographs by Walker Evans. He's also printed books for John Tcharkovsky, Paul Strand, Stephen Shore, Robert Bergman, Diane Arbus, and really, I'm just scratching the surface. The man has been making beautiful books for over 30 years. This conversation was recorded at Hennessy's home right at his dining room table. The guy was very warm, very welcoming, and I had a lovely time talking with him. I hope you'll enjoy listening in. And if you have anything you'd like to say, please feel free to get in touch. I'm Eric at thehalftone.org. All right, here we go. You said that you've been in this house for eight or nine years. Did you yeah. grow up around? Sorry? Did you grow up around Middletown? No, I'm actually from Chicago. And, I grew uh, up in Oak Park, and I came to Connecticut to work at the Meriden Gravure Company in 1979. And what had you been doing before... You came to Meriden. Uh, well, all kinds of things from when I was a young man. But uh, I worked uh, as a dye transfer printer, and I worked in uh, photo labs uh, before I came to Meriden Gravure. Um, there are technical things about dye transfer printing that were interesting because it's really kind of fundamentally it's really color separating, which is what I do. But uh, the emphasis was really on commercial advertising. And so I got, I got rather tired of doing that and printing cigarette ads and liquor ads and that kind of thing. But it was really hugely uh, uh, inf in informative in terms of taking pictures apart and then putting them back together. So you're making dye transfer prints in a darkroom or in the lab? Uh, well, the preparation of the uh, matrix film is done in a darkroom, but the actual printing in dye transfer is done in a room light environment. Once you've created the, the matrices to print from, uh, you actually do the printing in just room light. So. You said that you're making cigarette ads and things. Is that, um, are you making dye transfers to then be reproduced again? Yes. Uh, a lot of what we made were just samples for advertising agencies to look at and to determine whether or not that was an image that they wanted to use. And then oftentimes we would further uh, refine it. But um, imagine before computers and, and uh, Photoshop that if you wanted to take the stream from one picture and clouds from another picture and mm -hmm. the green grass from a third picture and put them all together, you had to do that by hand. And so we would, they were called strips, and we would create uh, those combinations together through dye transfer printing. And it was with the combination of the technique and then subsequent retouching to sort of join it all together properly, you really would have a hard time telling. And in fact, I mean, if you go back to magazines and things from 
probably from the 40s through the, well, more probably from the 50s through the, through the, I would say, early 80s, a lot of the imagery you see was actually created that way in advertising imagery. I think that maybe um, a lot of people my age or younger, I'm 31, um, know of Die Transfer <laughs> yeah. through just Eggleston because he's one of the yeah. guys that uses it so, so heavily. Yeah, well, you know, I will say that, that you know, like much of uh, the materials that Kodak made, Die Transfer was really a commercial endeavor. It had nothing to do with art or some notion of uh, uh, a picture. It was really a commercial operation designed to generate pictures really for advertising. And to go a little bit further back, um, how did you become involved or interested in photography? I uh, had a girlfriend in high school whose parents gave her a camera, which I then borrowed. What kind of camera? Until her that? mother found out. <laughs> it was a Nikon F. And I just wanted to try it. And I just immediately took to it. And then my father had an old Kodak Bantam that I used for a while. And then eventually I, I bought a, a fairly inexpensive, although at the time expensive, Nikon and started taking pictures. And then I set up a little darkroom in my parents' house. I was still living with my family. And uh, uh, just started to <laughs> take pictures and print like crazy. So this was around high school? Yeah, toward the end of high school. And built the darkroom while you were in high school still? Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you go off to college from Chicago? Uh, I went to uh, music school. Oh, really? Yeah. What did for, you play? I played the string bass. Right on. Yeah. But uh, I really, I would say that I was interested in multiple things. And, you know, photography won out. And I went on to the Art Institute of Chicago for about a year and a half, I think. But I really, a very good friend of mine who we're still close referred to it as play school. And in many ways it really was. It was, the great thing about art school were, were the other people I met. The instruction, some of it was informative and some of it was not. Some of it was helpful and some of it was not, but it was really an opportunity to uh, be in an environment where people had a similar point of view. So that was a first for me. And it was helpful. Um, what sort of stuff were you shooting and working on during those years? I did a lot of portraits at that time, which I don't really do very many portraits anymore. But I, I uh, did a lot of portraits then. And um, what sort of photographers were you looking at? Who was exciting you when you were um, kind of getting into it? You know, it's interesting. Uh, at that time, Ache, or as the French say, Ache, um, he, he was, uh, he, he was really, people were s starting to really pay attention to those pictures. And, um, uh, I would say, uh, certainly Cartier-Bresson and, and, uh, those early Friedlander books, that self-portrait book, mm -hmm. you know, we kids at the Art Institute thought that was a pretty funny book. So was this uh, early 70s then? Yeah, yeah. 70, from 70 to 72, I was there. And um, I know the, that, that Friedlander book, but um, 
Were there any Atje books floating around in those days? No, but there was a curator at the Art Institute of Chicago named Hugh Edwards. Uh, and Hugh was a big deal guy who not many people know about now, but he put on a show of Atje prints that, I mean, they were really something. He's incredible. Yeah. He's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, that was uh, an eye-opener to see, to see that work. So after, um, where do you go after, after college, after the Art uh, Institute? Well, I, <laughs> I did a lot of sort of menial labor-type jobs, uh, from working as a janitor to working in the woods, cutting trees down. But um, I wound up going out to live in northern New Hampshire. I had a girlfriend whose family was from the Boston area, and they had a summer home there. And uh, I went out there and had a pretty wild time for a few years. And I, but I wound up uh, working for a small newspaper called the Coas County Democrat that was owned by the Steinauer family. Steinauer, um, they had a significant uh, letterpress printing operation in Lunenburg, Vermont, which was right across the river from where I live, very, very close, right in the neighborhood. And um, I worked for the Coas County Democrat, which was run by Rock Roderick Steinauer, known as Rocky. His son, Steve, ran this newspaper, and Steve had graduated from RIT and was interested in printing. And, you know, clearly the, the uh, person who was going to take over the family business. But Steve was running the newspaper and he hired me to do basically what is, was called camera work and it was the preparation of the images. And while it was a different system, it was essentially creating uh, halftones, uh, the dot structure that ink on paper images for offset printing presses are made into. And I did that for a while, and then I came back to Chicago, and I worked for, as a photographer for the Arthur Anderson Company, which was, you may recall, was involved in the Enron scandal. And Were they? I don't yes. know. Them. But I only worked for them for about nine months, and much to my family's dismay, I just didn't like the corporate thing, and I left that. Now, and at, at the at the corporation, what sort of photography were they? Oh my gosh, they had there was there was a, uh, at that time, and I don't know what the rules are now, but uh, accountants could not advertise their services. They could hand out a card saying they were an accountant, but they couldn't really promote themselves. So they made these very slick color brochures of how they the kind of work they did in different. Uh, businesses, so for instance, the shipping industry or, or road building or, and, and sort of the kind of clients that they had in those industries. And we would go out and take pictures of, we took pictures of buildings and roads and uh, from helicopters of real estate and sort of all kinds of just general, what's called industrial photography. So any kind of application, we would just go and take these pictures. And what sort of um, camera film formats were you using back then? Hasselblad, color film, pretty much everything. And and 4x5, so color. 
before that uh, before that job, had you photographed from a helicopter before? No, I never <laughs> even been up in a helicopter, and it was a blast. But you know, just the culture was not for sure, me, so sure. I, I I didn't last in that. So I I left there, and I actually my I had a sister who who had a boyfriend who had a, a company uh, doing sheetrocking mm -hmm. on the north side of Chicago, and so I worked for this guy for a while. Did you wear the stilts? I did, and actually I was pretty good at it too. <laughs> did a lot of sanding, a lot of hanging sheetrock, but I realized this is not something I'm going to be doing when I'm in my 50s. Were you guys nailing everything then? Uh, screw guns. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, after that, I uh, uh, met a, a woman who uh, uh, lured me out to... Uh, California, and I worked out in California in a photo lab out there in Palo Alto while she went to law school at Stanford, but that was a culture that didn't agree with her, so she left, and we wound up leaving. And eventually I wound up, uh, I was offered a job at the Meriden Gravure Company because Steve Steinauer, who was running the Coas County Democrat, he went down because the Steinauer Press, they had the controlling interest in the Meriden Reviewer. They had a partnership with them, and I think eventually, in a business way, they had the controlling interest in the company. And so Rocky Steinauer sent his son Steve down there to sort of uh, prepare to run the company, which he eventually did. And Steve contacted me, or actually had the, the fellow named John Peckham, who was the president of the Meriden Reviewer, contact me, and they basically uh, offered me a job to come and do camera work there. And uh, that was in at the end of 79. And I'd never really been to Connecticut. I knew nothing about it. And I wound up in Meriden, Connecticut, which is a pretty interesting place. Uh, but unfortunately, they built this big highway through it and kind of wrecked it. But now they're trying to fix it, of course, like so many other places. Put it back together. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, uh, I worked for them for about five years, and uh, boy, who'd you meet while you were there? Well, Benson, Richard Benson, yeah, uh, who was um, he had worked there in mm -hmm. uh, I think it was like from the late '60s to the early '70s, and he left, and he was doing his own thing. But he happened to be there the day that I was visiting, and he was working on uh, the camera, re-photographing an image for the, the the book that he worked on called The Face of Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had brought some photographs that I had made, and he looked at them. He was, he was pretty enthusiastic, and he said I had planned to go visit some other places and he just said to me if you're serious about learning how to do halftones this is the only place to be so with that I didn't go anywhere else and uh, I went back to Chicago I was working in a photo lab back there and I was hoping to get a job at Mirrod and Gravure but they didn't have an opening and then Finally, somebody left, and, and they later, about a year later, they did offer me a, a job. You know, for I think I started at $5.25 an hour, but of course that was 79. And um, I worked there for five years, and uh, 
I left and just started my own. And I will certainly say that Richard Benson encouraged me. I mean, he certainly was a, a, a model of someone who was sort of doing something independently. Mm -hmm. And he, his, uh, you know, he, he had done it. So I thought, well, it's obviously it's possible to do it. I left on the promise from uh, Michael Hoffman at Aperture that he was going to send me some work. And eventually he did, uh, Michael Hoffman. And, um, uh, but it's, it's uh, very difficult to go it alone. Had, was Benson somebody you'd heard of before that first trip to Meriden? Uh, no. Someone had told me about him. And I actually had intended, he was one of the people I intended to try to go see. Mm -hmm. But he happened to be there at Meriden, so I didn't have to go see him. <laughs> uh, but um, no, I, I had not heard of him. What prompted me to come to, uh, I knew about Meriden Reviewer long before I got involved in printing because I had seen a couple of books that they had printed. And there, at that time, there really weren't a lot of photography books. You know, photography books were more, uh, they were more associated with traveling and that sort of thing. So if you went into a bookstore, they didn't have a photography book section. They might have had two or three, you know, Cartier-Bresson books kind of a thing, but they didn't have a lot of books. And were those tucked in with art, just in general? Yeah, they were kind of sandwiched in between art and architecture. You know, there'd be like four books. And uh, what were some of those early books that had come out of Meriden? Uh, there was a book that really affected me uh, in terms of printing that was done by one of my teachers at the Art Institute of Chicago named Harold Allen. And he did a book called Father Rivali's Missions. And uh, uh, it was printed by Meredith and Gravure. It's very possible that, that Benson actually had made the separations for it. In fact, it's likely that he did because he was there at that time that this book was made. And uh, to see a photograph as ink on paper was really, boom. And to see it done right in a way that represents mm -hmm. the original. Yeah, that it was, it could stand on its own. Yeah, yeah. So from, I guess from there, um, is that kind of a seed for you then? Uh, that, that, that it was in my mind, book, yeah. yeah. It, it was really in my mind to try to get involved in printing. But in Chicago, you couldn't <laughs> get a job with a printer unless you were in the union. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't get in the union unless you had a job with a printer. So it was this little catch-22 <laughs> thing, which is basically, if you didn't know somebody, right. forget it. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know anybody. Well, when you come on at um, Meriden, what were some of, I mean, when you're getting started, um, what were what you doing over there? You're doing what, at that time, I mean, again, this is all film mm -hmm. and chemicals and uh, big cameras and loud vacuums. And uh, you're doing initially what's called line work, which is basically uh, f photographing uh, either letterpress type that is intended for reproduction on offset or phototype from like a Mergenthaler that's intended for reproduction and offset and it's pasted onto a board and you photograph it with high contrast codolith film and you 
develop it, and then subsequently it's stripped into its position on a form, and the printing plate is made from that. So any kind of text, mm -hmm. the low man on the totem pole did, I and that's, that's what I did initially. And then that moved into line art, um, photographing engravings and things like that. And that's actually uh, was more interesting in that it requires uh, oftentimes uh, uh, masking techniques in order to retain the entire range. So the sort of uh, fuzzy masking technique that would hold back the uh, uh, finer lines so that uh, you didn't overexpose them and lose them. And uh, that was really the beginning of my, I mean, I had this dye transfer experience, but this was a whole, the, the, the offset thing was, uh, it's much more complicated. And there's much more you know, potential for making things. Dye transfer is one thing, but offset, it encompasses reproducing anything and can reproduce anything. Not necessarily well, but it has the potential to do it. And it's also the thing that it, it looks photographic. You know, when you screen something, of course now you can do it with a stochastic system, but when you're on the printing press with a, with a photograph, you can really make it look like a photograph. It doesn't look like something else. It really looks like a photograph. And then, um from line work, when do you start making proper separations of photographs or of, of art, two-dimensional artwork? Well, of course, there's the whole dynamic within the camera room um, and the, <laughs> uh, the egos and all of that. But eventually what happened was uh, the, the management of the company, they knew that I was really interested in this. So they cleared the way to give me an opportunity to actually make something. And I, I can't remember specifically the kind of job I worked on, but I worked on uh, making duotone negatives mm -hmm. from uh, original photographs that someone had brought in to make a book. And the uh, strategy would, was to use a high contrast film, Kotalith film, that was made by Kodak. It was called 2556, it was their premium film. And to uh, the, the, the printer that printed the black, the negative that was used to make the plate that printed the black ink, once you put the, can, the original photograph into the copy board and you were all prepared with your chemicals all set up, your you know, developer, uh, you would put a place a piece of unexposed Kotalith film on the back of the camera and then put a contact screen and uh, those contact screens were actually made photographically uh, on film, and then the film was bleached away and they were impregnated with dye. It could be gray dye or it could be magenta dye, and magenta, uh, the magenta screen had a longer range than any other screen. In other words, it could place a dot in the highlights and still, uh, well, you could expose the shadows properly without blowing out the highlights. But we would then subsequently develop the film by hand and still develop it in a tray. Um, and that's what gave you this very long range, the combination of the screen, the particular Kotalith 2556 film, and then subsequent still development. That gave you a very long 
range that you could really control the tonality of the picture very accurately that way. And uh, the black printer received a lot of exposure, so think of it as overexposing a scene to get all the shadows. And then the duotone color printer, call it a normal or less exposed halftone in order to create the proper highlight and near highlight contrast. And then the combination of the two, overprinting and register, created the entire scale of the picture. So the black printer would print in a dense black ink, and then on top of it, a PMS color, which was a gray ink, so it's not 100% opaque like black is, it's a cut ink, so it's thinner, it's lighter, but it's still strong. And the combination of the two if it's done correctly and balanced correctly and printed and register and all of the other things that go with it, it looks great. Really works. Um, when you um, went solo and uh, got uh, some work from Michael Hoffman, what were some of the first things that he sent your way? Uh, the first thing I did was a Bill Brandt book. Um, and when I worked at Meriden Gravure, we made 300 line screen uh, separations, negatives, halftones. And uh, at that time, at uh, Aperture, there was a production fellow named Steve Barron, who, Steve was a great guy in, in many, many ways. And he, he, he and Hoffman had some, I'm not quite sure what the relationship was like, but, but uh, Steve had I think his thing with Aperture was sort of a part-time thing. And then I think he had a job doing some other kind of bookmaking. I'm sort of industrial. I can't quite remember. But Steve wanted to print the book in Italy, and he wanted to print it in 200-line screen, even though I said, no, they, they should be able to print 300-line screen. But he was insistent. And anyway, I, I made a set of separations from Bill Brandt Prince uh, that came through Aperture, and those were the days when they just sent them in the mail to you. They sent you a box of brand yeah, prints? Yeah, in the mail. And uh, I photographed them all into halftone and, and very carefully prepared everything and sent the films to Italy, and they, they printed the book under Steve's supervision, and I, they were very happy with the result. What about you? I'm hardly ever happy with the result. <laughs> You know, Get if I'm there and I can, uh, it's sort of a thing of, you know, it's like making a print. It's like, hey, I wouldn't do it that way. I'd do it this way. And so when you turn it over to someone else, you have to give up the idea that you're going to really control it the way you might yeah. like. Yeah. And that's, that's just part of the, part of it. Can you talk a little bit about Michael Hoffman? I hear about him from time to time, but he's before my time. Well, you know, Michael was a very uh, eccentric fellow. I can't say that I really had many dealings with him personally. He really wanted me to work for Aperture, but I intuitively knew that that would be a bad idea. Rather than be working mm -hmm. on your own? Yeah, yeah. He sort of wanted me to sort of just have me do work for him, mm -hmm. but I knew that was just not, not just, again, intuitively I knew that would be a mistake. Um, you know, he, he, people loved him and people loathed him. Uh, 
you know, and I don't know really that much, uh, I don't have that much accurate information, even at the time, about uh, what he was up to. Mm -hmm. But uh, someone like Richard Benson probably has a better sense of that, of, of what he was like. Yeah. Much more than than I would. I, I I will say this that that he would only call me when uh, he really needed something from me. Mm. Otherwise, I dealt pretty much with Steve Barron. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a little bit of work from from Aperture, and I guess uh, after Bill Brandt is wrapped up, some other things start coming in. And yeah, I mean, I'm getting, I'm doing different kinds of work. I'm doing, uh, I'm making enlarged negatives uh, for people to make platinum prints from. I'm, I'm doing, I'm uh, copying things for people. I'm making platinum and palladium prints for people. Um, I'm uh, not just doing books. I'm just yeah. trying to survive yeah. and uh, pay the bills. Uh, I was married, I had a child, you know, I had a daughter, my mm -hmm. oldest, Emma. Uh, so I had to, I had to produce. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and um, uh, what else was I doing at that time? I, I got some work from Meriden Reviewer. Um, you know, this was again back in the days when uh, uh, it was much more relaxed. Uh, and, and the protection of you know, f photographs weren't didn't didn't have this value at that time. Photographs were still, eh, it's just a print, you know, it's not a big deal. And so they moved around. You know, I'd go down to the Museum of Modern Art and do a job for them, and I, John Cherkowski, would give me a box of. Cartier-Bresson prints just in a photo box just to take home. <laughs> and I just would take take them home on the train. I'd just carry yeah. them under my arm. Oh, my that goodness. No, no big deal. Now, I imagine, how do they do it now? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> well now, you know, work work from all, all of the museums, all of the institutions. In fact, institutions is probably a better word because it's not just museums. It's also, you know, collectors and things. Most of them have some uh, way of creating a digital file. And uh, uh, most virtual, most large, all large museums are able to produce their own digital files to varying degrees of success. And uh, so work that we get that is from an original is coming from an, ind an individual photographer or collector or someone who is not affiliated with an institution and the work is their own. It's not, they, they either own it or they made it and they themselves can bring it to us to uh, work on. Now with, with the museums having their own ability to make digital images, has that made your job harder? Would it be easier for you if you could be making your if you were controlling it from the entire process rather than starting with somebody else's file? Yeah, we would prefer to yeah. initiate the scan ourselves. Um, you know, um, I don't really want to say too much about that. It mm -hmm. would sound, I don't want to sure, uh, sure. criticize what other people are doing, but uh, I think anyone who is serious about making a particular thing, they want to do everything themselves so they can, you know, control each step. 
And we have uh, insight from experience about how we want to start something and what each uh, part should look like at each stage, and we're very particular about it. But we live in a world where uh, we do work still for institutions and we're not, uh, we're not able to um, get the original artwork from them. There was a time when uh, I went on location frequently to, before these uh, digital imaging departments, as they're called, were uh, formed at museums. And I would go into the museum with my equipment and I would actually make the scans there on location. And I did that for several years until they finally started to catch up and create their own uh, you know, departments. And then uh, they started to send me files to use. And frankly, there was a lot of complaining in the beginning, but eventually, you know, they, 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 they're doing what they do. You were going on location in the digital era, taking your yeah. better light, your scanner, and, and take my better light, set of lights. Yeah, what are the what are the light those? What types well, of lights are those? You can't bring hot lights into a museum, so you couldn't mm. bring tungsten lights in. You had to bring in fluorescent or some cool working light. Uh, the lights that we use here are these HDI lights. Uh, or HID, high intensity discharge. I think they they come from the uh, television industry, and um, they have a specific color temperature. Blah blah blah. Yeah. And they they work they they work just fine. Yeah. You mentioned um, Tchaikovsky handing you a box of Cartier Bresson prints. Um, Tchaikovsky is another guy who was not necessarily before my time, but who's um, somebody I'm very interested in, but have not you know and now. Have. I've missed my chance to have met him. Yeah. Um, how did you first meet him? Uh, when I worked at Meriden Gavur, I did a um, job for MoMA. Uh, of course, now I <laughs> can't remember which job it was. Um, but it was a, uh, a book of his. You know, I mean, he was the author. He mm -hmm. wasn't the photographer. And... Um, uh, he came to Meriden Gravure. And Meriden Gravure, uh, they had many uh, uh, customers and uh, all of the people affiliated with the company were sort of Ivy League grads, and they, uh, I mean the people who ran the company. And they um, had connections to all of the museums, university presses up and down the East Coast, and the Museum of Modern Art was one of them. And I think that I'm sure that it was Richard Benson's time at Meriden Gravure that helped establish some of these photography book relationships that continued after he left. And um, anyway, John Tcharkowski came up, and he's a very friendly guy, you know, he, he, very eccentric fellow, and but he was, he was a he he could be a real complete sweetie pie. And uh, he uh, uh, came up for, I think, the day to sort of get this job started up, which was often the case that people would come from museums just for the day they'd take the train from New York to New Haven, and someone would go down and pick them up and bring them back to the shop, and then they'd, they'd hang out, look at a few forms, have lunch, that kind of thing, and then they had time to go back, to, back down to wherever they were going. And uh, 
That's when I first met him. And I did a bunch of jobs for MoMA years ago. Um, all under Tchaikovsky? Uh, no. Peter Galassi, mm -hmm. Susan Kismarek, um, uh, can't think of anybody else. And did you do later, um, you mentioned that the book in the 70s was something that Tchaikovsky had written, but I assume that it's one of his histories of photography and not a book of his own pictures? No, uh, well, uh, I, I, I did do uh, uh, the idea. I, uh, Louis Sullivan book? I did the Louis Sullivan yeah. book, but I, I realized there's a yet a, no, that, that was the Louis Sullivan book I did. And that was published by, I think, Bullfinch Press, and that would have been in the mid-90s, I believe. And the, the, um, he, he would have, wouldn't have been in the 70s that he came up. It would have been in the early 80s. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So 10, 10 years later. Sorry about that. That's all right. Uh, no worries. Just, uh, I think, uh, okay, Ruth's got that. Was that photography until now? I did photography until now, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it wasn't that book. Mm. Well, that, that's a whole other story. That, that book was actually printed not at Mariner Gravure. That was after I left Mariner Gravure. That book was printed at a place called Litho Specialties in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, John Tarkowski is from Wisconsin, and so he's familiar with that area. And uh, he came and actually hung out for several days when that book was being printed. And um, uh, that was complicated, you know. That was, there were many different PMS color combinations. It's not, as I recall, there's not much color in it, if any. I can't really remember, but there was uh, many different uh, monochrome color combinations to create different colors for different types of prints. A platinum color, an albumin color, a warm gelatin silver print color, a cool gelatin silver print color, and we use these colors in combination on uh, different pictures. I mean, basically, uh, you know, I, uh, for many years when I was working, uh, call it analog, call it conventional chemical photography, tradition, whatever you want to call it, when we were still working with film and developing the film and trays, I did that up until uh, the early 90s. And then, uh, it, it, now understand that, it, it, you know, until that digital scan back came out, if you wanted to digitize something, you would do it on a drum scanner. And to get a drum scanner, my God, you had to pay, you know, $100,000, which of course mm. I didn't have and couldn't really pursue that. But the uh, scan back, and at the time there was a phase one, and then one called a Dicamed, and it was uh, a scan back that originally was used in medical imaging. But one of the engineers who worked on that, uh, a guy named Mike Collette, who lives in California now, he, uh, he's the one that took that same technology, the Dicamed, and I don't know the ins and outs business-wise of what happened, but he started making the better light scan back. And that better light scan back, at the time, I think it was like 25 grand, 27 grand, something like that. They were pretty expensive, yeah. but at least that was in a range where you could say, well, gee, maybe I could try to get one of those.
But at the same time, what was happening in a lot of different uh, places were that people were really starting to realize that, wow, you could take one of these scanbacks and you could use them for reproduction work. You could, it, it, it could take the place of uh, photographing with film. And um, uh, I remember there was a guy who worked for Jean Genoux, the printer in Switzerland, named Martin Sen. And I believe that Martin Sen used a Dicomed. If I, it would have been a Dicomed. And uh, had, I believe I saw a press proof of images that had been made, where he made the scans with the dicomat, and then that, those separations were uh, made onto film through an image setter. So, you know, some system to write that data onto film and create halftones. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's really convincing. You know, that, that looks like that would really work. And um, I have a friend, uh, Bob Bergman, who's a photographer of note. And uh, Bob, I'd done some work with Bob. And uh, Bob was interested in, in this technology to make a book of color images that he had been working on. And uh, also the Museum of Modern Art, uh, they were interested in, people were recognizing that this change was occurring, that uh, clearly there were many people out there promoting the idea of using these uh, uh, digital systems for imaging. And it was the kind of early days, but there were true believers who were uh, out there, you know, really telling everybody how wonderful it was. There were hucksters and promoters like anything else, but uh, it was clear that this was evolving and that in all likelihood it was only going to get better. And then also, this was really what, how things were going to be made, at least for a period of time. I, up, to, up until that point, had been considering uh, buying uh, a couple of big freezers and getting all kinds of film and, you know, you could make the chemistry from scratch, but you couldn't make the film. Mm. And, uh, but I never got that together. I never, I sort of yeah. seriously considered it. And then yeah. I thought, I don't know about that. What if it's spoiled? <laughs> what if the power went out? <laughs> All those things. And of course, in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't do that because yeah. it would have been a complete loser. Right. <laughs> because the one thing that happened too is that you, I, had I still, had I done that and continued to make film, I would have been incompatible with what printers were doing. They weren't, <laughs> you go into a printer now and you don't see anybody stripping film into place. That's really a thing of the past. But uh, uh, anyway, this, this uh, way forward with these digital systems is uh, uh, a number of things sort of coincided. So my friend Bob was having me try things. Uh, I had borrowed a phase one uh, back. Mm -hmm. You know, at those days, if they thought that you might buy one, they'd loan it to you to try it. And um, I was involved with, with trying to figure out some initial standards for the Museum of Modern Art to create their digital archive. And I was only involved in that in the very early stages. But uh, 
it was really my uh, working with uh, and with Bob Bergman, uh, who is pretty fanatical uh, uh, about what things should look like, that we were able to really determine that, yes, these things really can work. And uh, anyway, I, he subsequently borrowed, bought, I don't really recall, uh, a Dicomed back and set it up in his apartment in New York. And uh, we photographed a bunch of uh, type C prints, color prints that he had made uh, for subsequent publication uh, in a book called A Kind of Rapture. And uh, that experience really was an introduction to me to sort of the, f I'd never used a computer in my life. I knew nothing about Photoshop, none of that stuff. I mean, we're, I was just really trying to figure it all out. And, uh, but the very difficult thing was, uh, not only was it a completely new way of doing things, it was also a really expensive way. Yeah. If I went out and paid $1,500 for a lens, it would be a top-of-the-line lens, mm -hmm. and I could use it the rest of my life yeah. and hand it down to my grandchildren, and it would still work. But these computers, spending five or six grand on a computer, that's chump change, and it only lasts, you're only gonna use it for probably four or five years, and then you, you know, it'll be incompatible with uh, the blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So you kind of dump it, it's in the, I got half a dozen computers down there that I'm actually using, and I probably have several more that, the ones that I haven't gotten rid of, I have just as backups for software that I only use occasionally. Sure, sure. My friend Brian and I were having a similar conversation about cameras and how he got a Roloflex from an old uncle, and I got a Hasselblad from my grandfather, mm -hmm. and how these things work pretty much as well as they did when they came out. They'll work forever. And if we give our Canon 5Ds to our <laughs> children, they will laugh and say, my telephone can take better pictures than this. That's very likely. Yeah. yeah. And of course, there's a whole different uh, way that we use and interact with images now that, I mean, from my point of view, is relatively new. But pictures on paper are really quickly becoming a thing of the past. Yes, indeed. So prints, which is all I think about, mm -hmm. They're really moving into the background and, you know, seeing images on screens, no matter what size, in fact, smaller seems to be better. That's how people interact with images. And uh, you can take billions of pictures, if you choose, uh, without having to go through much of a process to be able to do that. Whereas in the past, when I think about what it took to make a set of separations on film and what I do now, the skill level to develop a halftone in a tray is so high mm. that, you know, it, it requires so much skill, it took years to learn. And I could teach you how to make separations, not saying that you could kind of do it and earn money doing it, but mm. I could show you the fundamentals very quickly because you don't really have to do anything. Mm. But of course, this arduous, complicated, smelly, unhealthy <laughs> system, you know, previously allowed you to see, bing, very closely and slowly. It was great. 
Now, not to be nostalgic, but are there are there parts of all of that old, smelly darkroom stuff that you miss? No, <laughs> no, I I I'm not one that longs for the yeah, darkroom sure. at all. I mean, I have friends my age who uh, have never gone into the digital thing. Mm -hmm. Who yeah, they have misconceptions about it. Digital pictures are not the same. It's a different thing, but it's still photography. Yeah. And they're still beautiful. But the best thing that ever happened was taking my wooden sink, smashing it, and taking it to the dump. <laughs> I was glad to do that, be done with it. When, what year was that? That was probably uh, 95. It's funny because, and I'm sure this is true for other people, I had all of these computer things sitting in the sink just yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like a big table and it was dry and, yeah. and I wasn't running the water. And, uh, you know, I put things in there and finally I thought, why am I keeping that? I'm never going to use it. Yeah. Um, I uh, once talked to Todd Papa George for a little bit and um, I was asking him about the dark rooms at Yale and he said, well, the students find them to be a pretty good place to store paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, I have lots of photographs that I've made over the years that are gelatin silver prints and platinum prints and all that stuff. And I enjoy them, but uh, I wouldn't want to go back and make them again. It's yeah. not something that's of interest to me. And I think that what's always motivated me in my picture making has been related to what I've been doing uh, for my job as well. So working on the printing press, um, you know, and handling films to size, and you know, the the, the halftone films were the same size as the reproduction of the book. So, you know, we thought of everything as same size, and we we you know used big cameras, and I used an eight by ten camera in my own picture making for many years, and uh, uh, contact printing instead of enlarging, and all of that stuff. But that's something I did then, but I'm doing a different thing now. You know, I have a digital camera. I have a couple printers down there. Um, I, I think that the digital system is beautiful, and, and uh, uh, it's, it's, it is easy. It's physically easy, but it's very difficult and very hard to get something that's really good. It's not any different, that part of it. You know... Uh, I do think there's an advantage to learning a one system and then learning the newer version of that system. Because I'm always looking back to compare it and I'm always, I mean, the, the experience I have previously is applicable to what I do now. Uh, and I'm assuming, sure, it would go in the other direction as well. But I'm an old guy, and younger people just starting out who don't have the experience of, and I'm not talking about taking a photography class in a dark, and making prints in a darkroom for a semester. I'm talking about doing it for 30 years yeah. or 20 years or whatever, and working at it, and then suddenly you have to change. Um, that experience of seeing is transferable, and that has a big effect, and if you haven't had that experience, well, then you don't have that experience. And I'm not saying that I personally think there's an advantage, but there are plenty of 
terrific photographers who've never had that experience, I'm sure. But I hardly ever see a beautiful print when I'm out in the world. It's pretty rare that I mm. see something that I think, wow, that's really good. What do you think of as, as really good? What's something that you can think of having seen r relatively recently that, that knocked your socks off or that you thought was truly beautiful? I have some friends who make really beautiful prints. But, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of comment on, okay. on, on uh, sort of, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm, I'm interested in my own pictures. Mm -hmm. In fact, in many ways, that's all that I'm interested in. I'm only interested in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not really that interested in what anybody else is doing. And uh, I don't really go out looking for pictures very often. I mean, looking at, it's pretty rare I go to a show mm -hmm. or an opening. I was at an opening recently in New York that was, you know, it was, it was very enjoyable and saw people I knew and all that stuff. But, um, you know, maybe it's my age. I'm just not, there's a lot of things I'm just not interested in anymore. But I'm really interested in my pictures. Well, to, um to kind of wrap things up, uh, mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about some of the book projects that you've been working on recently? Well, um, we're working on a Roman Vishniak book for uh, Prestel Publishers that I believe is a show at the International Center for Photography. And it's pretty interesting stuff. It's that, you know, photo uh, reportage stuff that uh, is really I mean, this is after, these are mostly pictures from after the Second World War, but it's, 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 it's pretty, uh, pretty moving stuff. And uh, we did a Mary Ellen Mark book, a reprint of that Streetwise book for Aperture. Mm -hmm. uh, we did, uh, uh, we're, we have sort of a long-term project that that's what we're working on today for a art collector in uh, New York is creating a digital archive as his uh, uh, collection and um, uh, what else are we working on um, uh, well let me say that I, I I'm not I'm very disinclined to take jobs where I travel. I used to do a lot, a lot of traveling to Europe and Asia. To uh, check on things as they're being printed? To and supervise printing, yeah. yeah, to supervise printing. And uh, uh, when I turned 60, I thought, I can't do this much longer. <laughs> and then I actively started to push back against it yeah. and stop taking jobs that I had to travel for. And um, uh, so much of what we do now is uh, we don't supervise. Uh, there are certain things that we have to go supervise, but I, I don't do much that I have to go for. And um, uh, we're doing a Maplethorpe book for the Getty. We do uh, a certain number of jobs a year for them. Uh, uh, People ask me what I'm doing, and I can hardly ever remember because there's so, there's so many things yeah. happening simultaneously, yeah. and they're in different stages. Mm -hmm. And we probably have a dozen things that are in an array right now that 
okay, this is going to be coming back around, so yeah. we got to get ready for this, and we need these materials. And Fred, who works for me, I say, well, I think this is going to come. Can you work such and such a day next week or days and, and uh, kind of work out the schedule? But, uh, you know, let me just say that I'm fortunate to have done this. You love it. Yeah. You make beautiful books. Thank you. But I'm I'm ready to, to not do it too. Yeah? Yeah. What's next? Um I do a lot of bike riding. Yeah. I do a lot of cycling. Yeah. And I around here? All year round, yeah. And uh, now it's the season, so the latex. I mean the spandex. <laughs> oh latex. Not too much latex. <laughs> but certainly some spandex. Uh yeah, yeah. I do. That's yeah. great. Yeah, we do a lot of riding around with a couple of different clubs, and yeah, do a lot of riding. And but uh, yeah, but that, that's just just sort of keep me uh, spinning for sanity. But uh, uh, no, is that making, the name of one of your clubs? No, that's. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have to hand that saying to a friend of mine, John Smart, who is a brilliant photographer, eccentric as all get out, who lives in Montana, who made some of the most beautiful portraits in Tibet in the very early 70s that very few people know about. Mm. He, he coined that term, spinning for sanity. And um, uh, we used to, he, he's done a lot of cycling as well. But anyway, um, no, I, I hope to be photographing and, and uh, uh, you know, just doing, doing other things. I, yeah. will, I will keep working you know, for an extended period. I have a young son who's uh, in high school and I gotta get him through college and all that. But um, my, my, I'm fortunate in that I'm glad that I uh, came into this when I did and I'm glad I'm leaving when I am. Yeah. I wouldn't really encourage a young person to get involved in this work because mm. I'm not so sure how stable it will be in the future. I'm not sure if someone could really make a career or a working life out of it. Yeah. If you were willing to do a lot of different things, but when you do a lot of different things, you're diffused in a way that um, I don't feel like you're, you're, you're doing one thing deeply. You know, There's a lot of application for photographic technique but first you have to learn the technique, and the technique is so dense, so deep, that it just keeps going. And I think it's very difficult to apply that to illustrated bookmaking into the future. It's very uncertain what, what will happen. And make note that I'm holding my iPhone, yes, yeah. because as we said, that's really how people are consuming images now. But thank you for contacting me about this. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for coming, uh, or not coming, but um, letting me come to you and You're to visit and chat. Thank you. Thanks so much. This episode was recorded May 20th, 2015 in Middletown, Connecticut with the Half Tone Mobile Recording Unit. Our theme music is by Daniel Bachman. I'm on Instagram, at Eric Marth. For more information on the show, or to check out other episodes, visit www.thehalftone.org.